We are in the third week of a four-part message series called Don't Carry a Grudge. Don't carry a grudge. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You will need your Bible, so why don't you go ahead and get those out, brush those off. I'm sure you've been in them all week. Uh, Thank you for those of you that joined us for the uh, three-day weekend Bible reading plan this weekend. I was glad to hear that. We'll be doing another round very soon. Uh, We're talking about forgiveness. We've talked about forgiving little things. We've talked about forgiving big things. We've talked a lot about forgiveness these last couple weeks. In fact, you might wonder why the message series is not called forgiveness. Or maybe you're thinking, no, they just, they like catchy names around here. Look at that cat. That's just, you know, it's going to stick with you. Just a catchy name. But I like the imagery of carrying a grudge. Because we've been talking about um, how some of us have an inaccurate definition of what forgiveness means. We've talked about how forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not forgetting that the offense ever happened. It's also not allowing the offense to continue happening. That's not God's will for us. It doesn't mean that. One of the words for forgive in the New Testament that Jesus uses is the Greek word aphemi, aphemi. And it means to send away, to release, to let go. Carrying a grudge is a great word picture for what we do when we withhold forgiveness. We carry the issue, the sin or the problem. We lug it around with us. We take it with us wherever we go. It's with us when we interact with people and when we're doing our jobs and when we parent and when we pray and when we think and when we make decisions. It's always there. It's always with us. And it comes to define us in a lot of ways. Carrying a grudge is allowing a sin or an offense to lurk around and participate in everything we do. So today, we're talking about forgiveness, about sending away, releasing, letting something go, not forgetting it, because we aren't God, and we're not capable of that. Not allowing it to continue, because that's not God's will for us, but sending away the grudge so it no longer defines us. We forgive two different kinds of things. We've gone over this not only in this message series, but in many other messages before. The Bible defines two types of things that we forgive. We forgive sin and we forgive offense now here's the deal i'm a nerd i write notes like nobody's business i i like words and word studies and everything so that's what we're doing this morning so you pull out a device you pull out a piece of paper you pull out your pen you're going to need to take some notes this morning we're going to get this deep into ourselves because we're not here to waste time are we we're here to get something that we can take with us out of this place today so write some of this down we forgive two types of things we forgive sins and we forgive offenses sin is something that hurt us that's intentional or it's wrong according to god It's intentional and or it's wrong according to God. An offense is something that hurt us that either wasn't intentional and or it's not necessarily wrong according to God. For instance, somebody gossips about us. That's wrong. The Bible says that gossip is wrong. It also says that we're to forgive the people that gossip about us. On the other hand, someone says something to us that isn't wrong, but it hurts us. For instance, I don't know if anybody else in here has been the victim of, oh, when are you due? How far along are you? (laughs) That's an offense. The person did not mean to hurt us, although they should be hung up by their toenails. Uh, But they didn't do anything wrong because the Bible doesn't specifically say, you know, don't, okay. 
hang on, Chin, stick to the notes. Um, it doesn't say you shouldn't comment on somebody's figure, but it still hurt us. And Pastor Troy reminded us of the verse that says that it's to our glory to overlook an offense, send it away, and not allow it to define us, either in how we view ourselves or in how we view the person that hurt us. But we're not talking about any of that today. That was free. You're welcome. Take that with you. Today, we're talking about forgiving your worst enemy. We're talking about forgiving the person we find almost universally the most difficult to forgive. Today, we're going to talk about forgiving yourself. So today, God wants to speak to us on the topic of forgiving our own sins and our own offenses. And I believe the Spirit is urging me to address this issue because it is an urgent issue for many, many people in the church. In fact, I believe it is standing between some of us and God's will, and today I'm going to show you why. So God wants us to forgive ourselves. What do we forgive people for? We forgive people for sin, and we forgive people for offense. What does that mean? We know when we sin against other people, but is it possible to sin against ourselves? And how is it possible for us to offend ourselves? When it, becomes, or when it comes to dealing with ourselves and our own sin, I think it breaks more accurately down into three ways that we forgive ourselves. We forgive ourselves for what we did, what we didn't do, there you go, and what we couldn't have done. We forgive ourselves for what we did, what we didn't do, and what we couldn't have done. Okay, so I want you to think about these in your own context for just a moment. I want you to think about forgiving yourself for what you've done. Didn't you only sin against somebody else when you said that awful thing that you can't unsay? Or you betrayed a person that trusted you? Or when you stole what wasn't yours or you lied to somebody that believed you? Aren't they the people that need to forgive? Yes, those people can and hopefully will forgive you. But also, you need to forgive yourself because when you did those things, you put yourself at odds with God. You ruined relationships. You ruined your own integrity. Think about forgiving yourself for what you didn't do. For that season in your marriage when things got rough and instead of leaning into your marriage, you leaned out of your marriage. You should have fought for it, but you didn't. And uh, you let it die. Or you made the choice to focus on your career because you thought that was the right thing to do, but you're looking back now and realizing that while you provided for your family, you didn't engage with your family. And now there are broken relationships standing behind you. I want you to think about forgiving yourself for what you couldn't have done. You didn't know that loved one was having suicidal thoughts, but you're still plagued with what you should have done or what you should have known. Or, or you were just a little kid. You didn't know you had a choice. You didn't know that you could stop what was happening and those awful things happened. And now in addition to being a victim, you hate yourself for not stopping it. You couldn't have, but you still wish you did. Do you see why this is the hardest person to forgive? We are just a couple minutes into this and I guarantee I have touched on a sore spot for every single person listening to my voice. I've, I've touched on a hidden wound or a repressed issue or a forbidden topic. Even if I didn't say it, isn't the Holy Spirit impressing it on you right now? 
Isn't he convicting you, turning you, uh, gently pressing you to consider what areas you might not have forgiven yourself? What are we supposed to do when we're haunted by what we did or what we didn't do or what we couldn't have done when the guilt and the shame will not go away? Church, just like any other question we have, the answer is found in God and in his word. And so today, we're going to look at two Bible characters. We're going to compare and contrast their stories. Two people who needed to forgive themselves, who had very similar stories right up to the end. And the only difference was the result, one tragic and one triumphant. But first, I want to set the stage to you. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to be reading from my notes today. It's going to be on the screen. If you're joining us online, it's going to be on your screen. But I want you to get into your Bible, get into your your paper Bible or get into your uh, digital Bible and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. So the Bible is telling us that there's two choices. One leads to salvation and no regrets, and the other one leads to death. And I don't know about you, but the choice seems pretty obvious to me. But the thing is, these are both sorrow. Now, that's a loaded word, isn't it? That's an intense word. It means deep sadness. I actively try to avoid sorrowful situations. But God's word is telling us that either way, either choice is going to involve sorrow. One leads to death and the other leads to life. So how do we choose life? Let's look at worldly sorrow. Another word for worldly sorrow is shame. Shame. Shame says, I did something bad, or I did something wrong, and I feel terrible. That's the sorrow. I feel terrible. But shame takes it a step further and says, I feel terrible, therefore I am terrible. I'm a terrible person. With shame, the things you did or didn't do or couldn't have done become who you are today. It follows you around. You carry it with you. You take it wherever you go. It defines you and your decisions, and it participates in all aspects of your life. Doesn't that sound familiar? With shame, you carry a grudge against yourself. Worldly sorrow becomes your identity. A perfect example of worldly sorrow comes in the life of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. You would know Judas as the guy that betrayed Jesus. The guy that betrayed Jesus. And that sounds like a a gross exaggeration or an oversimplification, but in fact, the Bible actually calls Judas the guy that betrayed Jesus. When they introduce him right at the beginning of the story, if you look in Luke chapter 6, Verses 12 through 16, it's an account of, and it's going to be up on the screen, it's an account of the 12 guys that Jesus called to do his ministry. And it says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to them and chose 12 of them who he also designated apostles. Here they are. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, 
Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Spoilers. They just set it up for you right at the beginning, like this guy's gonna just blow it. And so in our culture, the name Judas has become synonymous with the word traitor, but it's been that way since Jesus' time. So people would have been reading this letter that Luke wrote, and they would have already heard the stories about this Savior that had already ascended to heaven, and they would have heard about the man that was part of Jesus' inner circle, but he betrayed them, or betrayed Jesus, and, and that resulted in Jesus being crucified. So this was like drama. This was like people, you know, people want to know what's going on. And so the Cliff Notes version of Judas's story is this. When Jesus began his ministry, he called 12 men to be his disciples. They're the men that walked with him, the men that learned from him, the men that carried on his ministry. And Judas was one of those 12, and he went with Jesus everywhere for all three years of his ministry. And then the Bible tells us that Judas went to a group of influential people that were angry at Jesus and jealous of Jesus and wanted to kill Jesus, and he cut a deal in exchange for turning Jesus over to them, betraying Jesus to them. And that uh, it resulted in Jesus being arrested, and the arrest resulted in Jesus being crucified. Amen. And once Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us that Judas realized he had messed up, and he tried to return the money that he had been paid for betraying Jesus, but the bad guys wouldn't take it back. And so Judas left, and he ultimately hung himself. Yeah. Now, can you fill in the blanks between those two, two things there? Uh, Judas trying to return the money, realizing he messed up, and Judas committing suicide? I bet you can, because we think about what shame does to your mind. Think about what he must have thought. Imagine how he must have felt. Yeah. I, I think that he probably felt like a complete failure. I think he probably made a list of every single sin and mistake that led up to the big one. And I think he was in some really deep darkness. Yeah. And when he got there, he was exactly where Satan wanted him. When you experience shame, worldly sorrow, Satan has you right where he wants you. When shame takes over, Satan can convince you that you are worthless, yes, pathetic, useless, that God could never use someone like you, could never redeem a person like you, could never possibly fix the situation that you found yourself in. He can convince you that you'll always be this way, that there's no way out, that you only deserve bad things. He can panic you. And when you're panicked, you're just a breath away from a worse decision. Shame drives you away from God, and that's what Satan wants. In Judas's case, the Bible tells us Satan was whispering in his ear, talking to him, drawing him away from Jesus. And once Judas got to the point of shame, Satan could clinch it. He brought about death. So when we hear a story like Judas's story, it's tempting to believe that uh, we need to do the opposite of what he did, right? So he did the wrong thing, so we need to do the right thing. And the right thing is not to feel bad, and so we just shouldn't sin. So we don't sin, we don't feel bad, done. And that is the right way, but the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the opposite of shame, of worldly sorrow? Well, the Bible tells us that it's godly sorrow. And godly sorrow, another word for that is conviction. Conviction. And this, this is where the gravy is. Like shame, conviction says, I did something bad. I did something wrong. And I feel terrible. That's sorrow. But then, instead of letting it define us, 
Conviction says, I feel terrible, but with Jesus' help, it's forgivable and it's redeemable. While shame carries the sin around with you and allows it to define you, conviction leans into forgiveness. It leans into grace. It leans into Jesus and it forgives that afemi. It sends it away so it can't define us anymore. Conviction, godly sorrow, is necessary because the Bible says it leads us to repentance. If we didn't experience those awful feelings of realizing that what we did was wrong or what we experienced was wrong, we wouldn't be motivated to repent Amen. and to change. And that's why godly sorrow is a gift. Yes, it is. Amen. So the Bible tells us about another man who was chosen by Jesus, befriended by Jesus, walked with Jesus through his entire ministry, and who ultimately betrayed him. He was actually in that list we just saw. You know him as the Apostle Peter. I personally like to call him Pete. Pete was the disciple with a hot head and a big mouth. Jesus was always correcting Pete, Pete, Pete. And I can identify with that. And yet Pete stuck with Jesus. He leaned into Jesus. He learned from Jesus. And then on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested, Peter ran away. He left Jesus all alone. And then Pete snuck back to try and figure out what was happening with Jesus. And some people saw him and recognized him as one of Jesus's followers. And Peter bald-faced lied and denied that he knew Jesus three times. Can I tell you a story? My family. When I was 13 years old, I found myself in the sights of a 20-year-old man who wanted to be my boyfriend. There was something about me that appealed to his brokenness and his sin, and I don't know what it is, I could speculate, um, but he uh, manipulated situations and used his influence to cause us to interact, and pretty soon I found myself in a relationship with a man in his 20s as a freshman in high school. I use that, that term pretty loosely. For five years, the entire time I was a teenager, I was ensnared by this person. I was naive, believed that I was choosing to be in a relationship with someone who was my equal, but I was groomed, I was manipulated, I was abused mentally and emotionally, physically, spiritually. In fact, I was told on a number of occasions throughout the years that God had spoken to this man that this man had a God-ordained claim on my life, that I didn't have a choice in my future because God said that my future was already decided and I belonged to this person. And I didn't think that I could argue with God. At the time, I didn't think that I wanted to. But here's the crazy part. Up until the last few months of my life, so this is very recent, it hadn't occurred to me that anyone had sinned against me. That God, in his sovereignty, in his time, in his way, he brought some of this experience out of the dark and into the light. And I came to know for the very first time that wouldn't you know it, my teenage self had misinterpreted the events. Now, what I don't want to do is paint a picture that goes so far as to say that I didn't make any choices and I was utterly at the mercy of someone else. I was naive, I was immature, 
I was manipulated and I was deceived, but I also sinned. I disobeyed my parents, hid things from them, uh, chose willfully not to do the things that I knew that God wanted me to do at that time. And so for the last decade and a half or so, I have lived with the belief that everything that happened was my choice and my fault. And as I've worked with a counselor and I've gone through these hours of prayer and journaling, I've come to recognize that in fact, I didn't interpret those events correctly. I can see now that I was mistreated, misled, and sinned against. So now here's the million dollar question in a gray area story like that. Do I need to forgive myself? And uh, I think that some of you, specifically those of you that are really, really close to me and were around for that situation, I think you might say no. I think you might say you were wronged. You didn't do anything wrong, you were manipulated. And I appreciate that. I, that's affirming to hear because I am realizing that the reality is that I was sinned against, but I also did wrong. I needed to forgive myself first because I did things that I knew I shouldn't. And second, because I couldn't have done things that needed to be done. This past version of me, this 13-year-old little Trin, had some correct information. I knew God, I knew his word, I knew my parents' rules, and based on that information, I chose, she chose, to do things that she knew weren't right, like lying and disobeying. This little Trin, she also had faulty information, because this man was feeding her lies and manipulating her, because in her rebellion, she wasn't interacting with the healthy adults in her life who could correct those lies. She didn't have information that she desperately needed, like that this kind of relationship wasn't normal, it wasn't appropriate, she didn't deserve what was being done to her, and she had a right and the ability to walk away. Now, you do with that information what you will. I don't think it should change your perception of me because your stories don't change mine of you. This is part of the God story Amen. of my life. It's part of his story. Amen. And it's part of the miry clay that I can look back and see that God lifted me out of Hallelujah. in his beautiful grace and mercy. Yes. But based on the story that I just told you, you might imagine that I have spent years thinking about this situation and replaying it in my mind and wallowing in it and reliving it. But honestly, I haven't thought about this situation or even this person in many, many years. Uh, it came up recently. Sometimes things just come up, don't they? Just something just triggers you in your mind and it, it came up. And so I'm very grateful that my husband and I have built the uh, habits in our lives that we have because it came up and I was in conversation with my husband. I was able to have a healthy conversation with my husband. I was able to, to hash this out a little bit and he prayed for me and then he asked me, are you gonna talk to your counselor? And I was like, I sure am because I have a standing appointment already with my counselor. So I was able to go through that with this person and, and able to journal and able to lean in and. Um, and it's something that I've been able to work through. But up until that happened, just a little while ago, this was not something that even occurred to me on a regular basis. But I'm beginning to realize that it did impact who I am. 
This experience has informed many decisions I've made and even how I see myself without me realizing it. In this area of my life, I was stuck and I didn't even know it. And so what I want to talk about today is what do you do when you realize that you're stuck in some area of your life? Either you've known it for a long time or it just comes up. What do you do when you're stuck? Well, you go to the word. And so Matthew chapter six, these are the words of Jesus. And he says this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Now listen to me. I don't want to get too out there with you today. I don't want to get too in our heads about this. I don't want to get too woo with you this morning. But I want you to know the truth that God is speaking to me and to you and to our church at this time and at this moment. So I need you to track with me here. One of the people that you have to forgive, according to this passage in Matthew, is you have to forgive you. And you look at that passage and, and it says you have to forgive others. It doesn't say you have to forgive yourself. And so you're like, Trin, you're taking some liberties here. Where are you getting it? Where does it say in the Bible that you have to forgive yourself? Hear me out. That person isn't you. It is, but it isn't. That person is a past you. It's an old you. It's a little you. It's kindergarten you or 25 year old you or last year you or yesterday you, but it's not you that's here right now. This is a different person that we're talking about. It's an other and we have to forgive that person if we're ever going to receive forgiveness that's freely offered by God. So I want to show you two verses in the Bible. These are like, underline them, mark them up, write them down. Two verses in the Bible. You can look them up in yours, but we're going to look at them here. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, and 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let me read these to you. Lamentations says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 is in the New Testament. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, let's talk about these verses for a second. Lamentations is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Now, I'm in the NIV, the New International Version. There's different translations of the Bible in English. So if you're in the New Living Translation or the King James Version, you might say your mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. This word in Hebrew is um, it's the Hebrew word rock'em, rock'em, you know, rock'em. So <laughs> it, means, it means compassion or, or it means mercy, but it comes from a root word. It's the same root word for the Hebrew word rock'em, rock'em. Okay, so you know, you, you got, you got Rockham and you got, you're gonna remember it, aren't you? You're gonna go home and be like, I don't know what she talked about, but I know two Hebrew words now. <laughs> Rock'em, wreck'em. And that wreck'em word is the Hebrew word for the word womb. Now they're, they're connected. They're two words from the same root word. What does that tell us? That these mercies, these compassions that are new every morning, 
They're, they're not just new like they're appearing for the first time every morning, but they're new like they're being birthed every single morning. And then you look at 2 Corinthians. This is in the New Testament. This was written in Greek. I told you I was a nerd. Track with me here, okay? This is written in Greek. And this, this phrase here, the new creation has come, it's all out of order. You need to know that the English language has a really hard time accurately uh, representing. Sure, They don't know what they'd be talking about, okay? Um, and so... So this is this phrase here, the new creation has come. Your Bible might say uh, uh, the new is here or the new has come. That Greek phrase, it means like the new has come into being, which would just sound weird. So they, they try to make it work. It, it's a word that is, it means emerging or transitioning or becoming something. The definition in, in the Greek uh, study of this word, it says that it implies motion, movement, or growth. Take a drink of your coffee, okay? Shake your head. You got this. Stay with me here, okay? Stay with me if you're at home. This is what this says. God's mercies are birthed in a new way for us every single morning. And when we are in Christ, we are in motion, becoming new every single day. So when you wake up every morning, you are a different person than you were yesterday. That's how God created. Every single morning, you are being offered a new set of mercy and compassion and new life. But like Judas and like Peter and like everyone else in the history of the world, you decide whether you're going to define today you based on who you were yesterday or whether you'll define today you based on today's mercies. Are you going to dwell on yourself or are you going to dwell on grace? And so we started this talk back in Matthew chapter six, put that back up again, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. This includes you, but not you, you, not today, you, yesterday, you, old, you, little, you, that different person, that other person, you have to forgive that person. If you're going to be able to walk in the forgiveness of God, you have to forgive what you did. You have to forgive what you didn't do, and you have to forgive what you couldn't have done. You have to forgive the sins of that other person, what you did wrong, what you knew you shouldn't have done, or what you, what you did do or didn't do. And you have to forgive the offenses, the decisions that that person made based on faulty information or things that you couldn't do because you didn't have the capability. You have to forgive that person, just like you have to forgive anyone else who sinned against you. How do you do that? Three steps. It's actually very easy. How do you forgive that person? First, you confront. Next, you forgive. And the third one, I can't remember how to spell. You move forward. You're like, that's a pretty easy one. You get up here and do it then. <laughs> you confront, you forgive, you move forward. Now, let's talk about this for a second. I know some of you are like, I have not been listening to a word that you have said for the past half hour because I want to know what this is. <laughs> this is my son's Christmas present. 
Okay, this was his, his big present for Christmas this year. We got him one because he has 7,000 aunties and uncles. And he still came out like a you know, winner. So. But this was his present. It's a tractor. It's a blue tractor. This was a very specific request because his T.O. Anthony has a blue tractor and he needed a blue tractor. So we searched to the ends of the internet and found one. It actually came, I didn't bring it, but this is a trailer hitch. So cute. And it came with a trailer. And when we got the trailer, we actually found it is a perfect fit. Like it was made for it for my daughter's infant seat. So she's been riding around in the back of this tractor while he's just been driving circles around our house. It's got, it has Bluetooth speakers. This kid's ride is sicker than mine. It, it's got this thing and it makes all kinds of, he loves it. He loves this. Okay, so this is his tractor. And my kids actually have a few different, I have three, thousand kids and they have a few different ride-on toys we have a jeep that was given to my daughter my son's first one was a motorcycle because papa has a motorcycle he had to have a motorcycle and when we got these ride-on toys i noticed that all of them have every single ride-on toy for your kids has two functions they have forward and they have reverse they have forward and they have reverse. And that surprised me because my kids are little. They're all three and under. So everything for us in this season is single concept. Like you can give them one instruction maybe and then you have totally lost like their attention. It's over. So for me, it was like drive. This is the button you push. This is the pedal you push. Just drive and go. And so when we got the first ride-on toy, we put our son on it and I didn't show him the reverse function because I was like, we'll add that later. Let's get down the drive and then we'll figure out the reverse. Here's the thing that came out really, really quickly. It is impossible to drive without reverse. You can't do it. I put my son in the seat. He was super happy. I'm like, here's the button. You push it with your foot, you go. He was super happy, super confident, drove that sucker right into the side of the house. Just <laughs> right there. Where are you going to go? Will you drive into a wall or into a bush or into the side of my right knee 37 times? Where are you going to go? You're not going to go forward. I can tell you that. And so to get unstuck, my son had to have a function that is second nature for those of us that have been driving for a while. And that's the reverse and re-aim. You know how it goes. You pulled into a parking spot, you parked in your driveway, you parked your car in your garage, you're parked behind somebody, and then you have to leave. And so you know what you do. You get in your car, and what do you do? You put it in reverse, and then you do that. Right? Or those of you that are fancy, you've got the, um, the reverse camera. So you're like, reverse. Right? You're like, I can do it. Line up the yellow lines. And so uh, we reverse, and then you go back, you pull back to a point that you're not stuck anymore. And then what? You can't keep going in reverse. You have to put it in drive. But if you just put it in drive and go forward, you'll go right back to where you were. So you have to, after you reverse, turn the wheel, re-aim, and then go. That is the same thing we do when we forgive ourselves. We let go of the grudge against our past self and we get unstuck. We confront the sin. We turn toward it. Pastor Keeley is our counseling pastor. She always talks about the definition of confronting. So we think about confronting. Some of us uh, have an unhealthy um, idea of what confronting means. It means like, I'm angry and I'm right. That's not what it means. When you confront someone or something, you're turning your face toward them. You're just turning your face toward them to handle the issue. 
And so when we're forgiving ourselves, the first thing we do is we reverse and we confront the sin. We confront the old self. And then we forgive the sin. What is forgive? Afemi. We send it away so that that sin can't define us anymore so that we're not who that person was anymore. We confront it, we turn toward it, and then we send it away. We re-aim our life, we turn the wheel, and then we move forward. We move forward in Jesus. We don't stay aimed toward the sin, but we turn ourselves toward grace. We turn ourselves toward the Savior. You know, some of you have heard Bible stories so much and you're so familiar with them that you didn't realize that I didn't finish Peter's story. Uh, the rest of you are thinking she just got off track. She really wanted to talk about that tractor and so she just forgot to finish the story. You're going, how did it end? You said it ended well, but how did it end? Whether you know it or not, listen to this story. This is incredible. Jesus died having been abandoned and betrayed by Peter. And then Jesus rose again. And he was seen by some people, but he was not seen by Peter until in John chapter 21, Pete is going out to fish. Now, some of you will remember a few years ago, Pastor Troy broke down John 21 and it blew my mind. There's so much rich theology in this short passage. And he pointed out that it was groundbreaking that Pete was going fishing because Pete was fishing when Jesus called him, and he hadn't been fishing since. So what Pete was doing was going back to how he was before Jesus. Have you done that? You, you're, you're standing in the grace of Jesus Christ, and you've been saved, and then you mess up, and you revert right back. You regress right back. You snap right back to the old you again. I know I've done that. And so Pete is fishing. He's living his old life, and Jesus shows up and shows off. And Pete, bless his little heart, despite everything, he runs right to Jesus. And if you learn nothing else from the life of the Apostle Peter, I hope you'll remember this. Always, 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 no matter what, Hallelujah. run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He's waiting for you. Praise the Lord. And then Jesus and Peter, they have this private conversation. And it's, it's detailed out in John 21. We're not going to read it today, but, but I challenge you to go home and read John chapter 21 this week. That's your assignment. In fact, some of you could really benefit from reading the book of John Amen. this week. And I so appreciate those of you, like I said, that joined me on the Bible plan this week. That tool is still available to you whether I invite you to a plan or not. So get on there and find something that you're going to study this week. I looked yesterday, and there's so many plans of varying lengths that go through just the story of John. Just read the book of John. But John 21, there's so much going on in there, so I'm just going to summarize it for you in our closing minutes today. It's the cliff notes again. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? In this private conversation between just Jesus and Peter, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Pete says, yes. And then Jesus repeats the question, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And then one more time, Jesus asks, Pete, do you love me? And Pete says, yes, I love you. And there's so much richness in this scripture. I could talk about it until dinner time, but I promise you I won't. I just want to draw your attention to this very simple takeaway. Jesus asked three times. Three times. Where have we heard that before? Back when Peter uh, was hanging around while Jesus was arrested and tried, Peter denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus 
ever loving, ever merciful, ever gracious Jesus affirms Peter's love for him three times. Talk about redemption. You know what Jesus didn't do? Rub Peter's nose in it, make him grovel, make him pay. You know what else Jesus didn't do? Pretend like it didn't happen, ignore it, pass it by because it was uncomfortable. Jesus turned himself toward Peter's sin, and in doing so, he turned Peter that way too. They both confronted his sin together. The Bible says that they were walking together as this conversation happens. They were walking together. When you walk with someone, you don't face them because that would be weird. (laughs) By the way, just a little free tip for you. Did you know that on average, women interact better facing each other and men interact better facing the same direction? Did you know that? That's why women in general tend to want to have coffee and talk to each other, and men in general tend to want to go golfing or work on their car because they can face the same direction, and women can face each other. That's just a free tip. That wasn't even in the notes. You're welcome. You want to have a good conversation with your husband? Learn how to play video games. Sometimes. Anyway, um, Jesus was walking with Peter. Why? Because Jesus meets us where we're at. When he was talking to the woman at the well, he was facing her. He always meets us where we're at. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus and Peter were walking next to each other by the seashore. They were facing the same direction. And in my mind's eye, I can almost imagine them looking out at the water. And it's as though they're facing Peter's sin together. They're confronting it together. And, and I can kind of see them shoulder to shoulder. And Jesus is saying, look at that, Pete, three times. Look at what you did when you betrayed me. Look at what you didn't do when you didn't stand with me. Look at what you couldn't have done when you didn't prevent my death. And look at what I did with it. Look at what I can still do. You betray me three times, I'll raise you three times of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And then Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. In other words, go do my will. Go show my love. I am still going to use you, and we're going to move forward together. And so Jesus turns Peter toward his sin and they confront it. And then Jesus forgave Peter's sin. And I imagine based on the conversation and what we read and what transpires after that, that Peter also forgave himself, past him, betrayer of Jesus. And then Jesus turns Peter toward himself, toward a future, toward his plans for Peter. The very next words he says are about Peter's future as a church leader and then a martyr. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and thousands were saved and the church began, who was there? Peter, giving the salvation message, leading the charge for the church. Hey, can I be honest with you? We have arrived at the point in the message where I am tempted to just keep talking. I am so passionate 
about what God is speaking to us today. And I am so passionate about you. You have no idea how much I want to see you gain victory. How badly I want to see you get this point today. I want to convince you. I want to bring it home Billy Graham style. But that's not my job. Not today. I've exhorted you. I've admonished you. I've called you to listen to God's word and to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And no matter how eloquent or prepared or loud or funny or passionate I am, I cannot make choices for you. Amen. I can't choose for you to forgive yourself. I can't choose for you to forgive others. I can't choose for you to accept God's forgiveness. I can't even choose for you to be saved, to receive Jesus as your savior and experience new life with him. All I can do is set the table and call you to dinner. You choose whether you eat. So here's the dinner bell. Some of you today are being led by the Holy Spirit to begin the process of forgiving yourselves. You're being prompted, convicted about an area where you did something or didn't do something or couldn't have done something or some combination usually of those. And today, God is calling you to do the work of forgiving past you, of reversing and re-aiming, of becoming unstuck of confronting the sin, forgiving it, and moving toward Jesus. And so what are we gonna do? Well, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, that's me, and I'm ready. I'm getting my arm ready because hand-raising time is a-coming, and I can raise my hand. Not today. Not today. Because this, what we're talking about, forgiveness, it's a process. You can forgive today. You can receive grace today. You can walk out of here different in the power of the Holy Spirit, but you cannot carry on with life as though it never happened. You have to do the work of forgiveness. And so today, if that's you, if God is showing you an area of your life that you need to forgive, a past you, here's the call. You're gonna write it down. In the seat pocket in front of you or behind you, there's pens and there's pencils and there's connect cards, but there's also pieces of paper. We put those out so that you can write down what your next step will be. So you need some options. I've got options. Some of you need to acknowledge what happened. You need to get in a room this week with a paper and pen, or you need to get in a room with a laptop, and you need to write out the details of what happened. You need to get to the where's and the why's and the who's and the how's of what actually happened, especially if this is something that happened a long time ago. You need to evaluate whether you appropriately interpreted the events. You need to acknowledge. And so you're gonna write down when and where and how you'll do it this week. Some of you need to see a counselor. We have a counseling center here at New Life Church, and I know some of you are thinking, you're pushing this counseling thing really hard. What's the big idea? What's the deal? What are you, what's your play here? Nothing. I don't care if you see a counselor here. I, I actually don't because um, I, I've seen someone else for a number of years. You just need to see someone. I don't care if it's here. If you need names of somebody else for some weird reason, no questions asked. I'll give them to you. I think it needs to be a Christian. I think that makes sense, don't you? But you need to see a counselor. Why? Because did you not hear the story that I told you a few minutes ago? Something came up for me. 
And it's not the first time in all the years that I've been an adult and all the years that I've walked this earth and all the years that I've been married, it's not the first time that something came up. But did you hear how simple it was? I was already in the habit of open conversation with my husband. I was already in the habit of journaling and I was already in the habit of seeing a counselor. I had a standing appointment, so it just came out. It's important. We are made for relationship. We're made to work things out with other people. You need a counselor. You need somebody to talk to. And so some of you are going to write down, I'll make an appointment this week. I'll do it. I'm going to do it. It's worth it. Some of you already see a counselor. That's good. Bring it up. Don't, don't dance around the subject. Don't try and deflect. Don't find other things to talk about. Bring up the thing that the Holy Spirit is convicting you about. Get it out. Confront it. Turn your face toward it. You know, some of you have done the reverse, but some of you have not re-aimed. Some of you are still living in the past. You've acknowledged it and acknowledged it and acknowledged it. And frankly, the people around you are sick of you acknowledging it. Get over it not get over your feelings but stop living in the past where it was some of you have done the reverse but you haven't done the re-aiming you're not moving forward maybe this week you need to get in a chair and you need to face an empty chair and you need to have a conversation with you because you say you've forgiven the other person and you've forgiven the other person and you're saying it all the time and you're praying it all the time and you mean it but you're still stuck maybe the missing link is you Maybe you don't just need to forgive that other person. Maybe you need to forgive you too because there was something you did or something you didn't do or something you couldn't have done or you couldn't have known and you need to sit down and you need to talk to that person or you need to write a letter to that little person that passed you and you need to forgive. Why? Because if you do not forgive them, your heavenly father will not forgive you. So you're gonna write down, I'm gonna talk to that person this week. I don't know you know more importantly god knows here's the deal church i don't have time for this you don't have time for this we cannot keep taking the easy way out where we come in here and we listen to the word of god and then we get our holy ghost goosebumps to an amazing soundtrack and then we walk out of here the same way that we were never intending to do anything about it you don't have time jesus is coming back people need to hear what you have it is time for us to move forward Look at me, there is nothing that Jesus Christ cannot redeem. You just ask Pete. So today you gotta do something. You don't have time not to. And for some of you today, you're in here or you're online or you're listening to the podcast and you know the step you need to take. You know, you knew this was coming, but in case you need to hear it again, here it is in the words of good old Pete. Acts chapter two. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In other words, this promise is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what you did or didn't do or couldn't have done, just repent change direction, reverse and re-aim. Let God do his work in you and then let God do his work through you. And if that's the step you're gonna take, if you're accepting Jesus today, write it down. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And then write it again. But this time, 
write it on a connect card. Put your name on it. Take it to the next connect corner after the gathering. Or if you're online, go to newlifeca.church connect. Put your name and tell me that you're accepting Jesus as your savior. Why? Because there's more steps. And there's steps that need to be taken with the church. You're not joining New Life Church. You're joining the church of Jesus Christ. And we're here for one another. And we've got to keep moving forward. So that's your next step today. I've asked the worship team to come. We only have a few minutes left. I've asked them to sing a song of faith over you today. And you may choose to sing with them if you'd like. Some of you have a little bit more of this assignment to do. Some of you haven't written something down. It's time. Some of you wrote something down right away and I'm not sure I believe you. Maybe I do. Do you? Do you actually intend to take that step this week? Are you really committed to whatever Jesus calls you to do in this healing process? When you are, when you're really committed to that step, when you're sure it's what God's calling you to do and not just what works best in your narrative, go ahead and sign it and date it. You're not turning it in, you're taking it home with you. I'm never gonna see this and probably nobody else ever will, but there's something about signing your name and dating something that hopefully means that you're really committing to doing it. Here's what I know, God is calling you today and what he calls you to, he will always enable you to do. There is power in the name of Jesus to redeem absolutely anything, just as peace.
seat pocket in front of you or behind you. It's not, um, it's, those are very important to us. That's a spot for you to be able to write down what you need. And I'm here, your pastors are here, your leadership team is here to help, not to do for you, but to help. If you don't know what the next step is, or you do, but you don't know how or what to do, if you need something, if, if you need counseling, if you have a prayer request, if, if you've been saved or you have questions about being saved, if you've been saved but you haven't been baptized yet and you want to know why or where or how, if, if you have questions about the Bible, whatever you need, that's what that card is for. And you can fill it out here, you can fill it out online, or you can just come ask because we're family here. And I want you to know that whether or not you wrote something down this morning, whether or not you do it this week, I love you. I'm for you. And it is a privilege to be one of your pastors and your leaders. But I also want you to know that I love you too much to quit bugging you until you start moving in the direction that God has called you to. So may God bless you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you, church, may abound in every good work. I love you. You're dismissed.